Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello and welcome to the Top in Tech podcast. This is the Global Council's monthly podcast, which explores the tech lash. Why is the tech sector so unpopular? And what are the politics driving the unpopularity of the sector? What policies and what new laws are we going to see as a result? I'm Colin Darcy. I'm the regular host of this podcast and the senior practice lead for tech, media and telecoms at Global Council. And I'm delighted this month to be joined by two esteemed colleagues, Lila Housen-Smith, who's a senior associate in our UK politics and policy practice. Lila is a former special advisor in the British government and she leads much of our analysis of the UK's government's tech regulatory agenda. I'm also delighted to be joined by Franck Tamar. Franck is a senior associate in our Brussels office and a member of the tech, media and telecoms team. He's an EU legislative and digital policy specialist. Franck covers a range of policy issues from data protection to data transfer to cybersecurity and much else beyond. So welcome both to Lila and Franck. Um, we've got two um, juicy topics to get stuck into today. The first, looking in the UK's direction, is the online safety bill. Five years in the making this bill has been, but it's finally arrived. We had the second reading in the House of Commons yesterday. It's the centrepiece of the UK's post-Brexit digital regulation agenda. So what's in it? And how will it fare in the parliamentary process? Lila will lead our discussion on that in a few minutes. And then second, uh, we are going to discuss the EU-US Privacy Shield. It was struck down in July 2020 by the European Court of Justice. And efforts have been ongoing in fits and spurts ever since to negotiate the Privacy Shield 2.0. The idea is to put EU-US data transfers on a firm legal footing. There's a buzz at the moment that the chances for a deal are growing. So we'll explore where things are and is that realistic? Franck will take us through the EU perspective on a number of those issues. Let's get um, let's get started, Lila, um, with our first topic here. I want to go into the online safety bill. As I said before, we've been waiting a long time for this bill. Uh, Those jaded amongst us will remember a green paper in 2017, a white paper in 2019, not one, but two government responses, a draft bill last year, a scrutiny committee. And now we've got the bill. But after all of this, it becomes a little bit confusing to remember exactly what is in the bill and what is no longer in the bill. So can you just give our listeners a very quick overview of just what is the online safety bill and what are the key measures the government is pushing? The the kind of first thing to say is that the online safety bill is it puts in place a new regulatory regime for all platforms that hold um, user generated content and all platforms that are covered by this bill are required now to remove illegal content. These are kind of some obligations that they were under before, but this bill kind of brings it all together and presents a kind of new legislative underpinning for it. Also means that some platforms will have additional duties in regard to legal but harmful content that either kind of children are exposed to or adults. And it requires on that basis for platforms to introduce some new empowerment tools um, to allow Um, users that perhaps don't want to see that legal but harmful content on their platform um, to to not 
um, have that visible. Um, the other kind of things to know are that this whole framework is now sort of formally overseen and enforced by Ofcom, the regulator, and that they will have as part of this new information gathering powers and also the power to potentially levy fines and impose criminal sanctions on senior management. So really, it's about kind of bringing together a lot of kind of work that was being done around internet safety and internet regulation into one single regime that will apply to a whole number of platforms that hold user-generated content. So we're talking about a pretty extensive piece of legislation here. This is not just your run-of-the-mill bill that a government throws into a Queen's speech um, agenda and um, that will sort of potter its way through Parliament with only specialists becoming interested. This is a major, major overhaul of how online markets, particularly social media, but not exclusively, will be regulated within the UK. So let's just take that. It's a big piece of legislation. You threw in some bits and pieces there that are clearly politically controversial. So can you just talk us through what the politics of this? I mean, what are the key points of contention that you think are most likely to come up in the parliamentary process and potentially cause the government some problems? I think the main thing, and this is something I I mentioned up front, is the inclusion of legal but harmful content. For some, this really raises some quite important concerns around potential sort of regulatory overreach, but also the fact that platforms might respond in kind by um, pursuing kind of over-moderation. And I think the reason for this is because although the the government has created some exemptions around um, certain types of content, so particularly a journalistic and political content, a whole swathe of kind of content will be captured by this legal but harmful regulation. And, and that's really quite significant. Also, as part of this process, in terms of designating what is legal but harmful, gives quite a lot of power to both the Secretary of State, but also UK MPs, Parliament, to decide what is legal but harmful. And I think the concern there is that that power could potentially be used in a way that is is not appropriate and kind of proportionate. So those are the, the kind of things that are really preoccupying MPs. And I should say this is both MPs on, in the Labour Party, but also MPs within the governing Conservative Party. So that's kind of the central issue that I think we'll see MPs really get into. But there are also a, a wider range of topical issues where I think we'll see a lot of kind of concern and interest developing. So particularly around the bill's provisions on disinformation and fraud. Clearly, disinformation has once again become very salient after the, what's going on in Russia, Ukraine. And I think there's a concern that the bill doesn't kind of adequate, adequately address some of the issues around disinformation on platforms. And similarly on fraud, this has become a similarly huge issue around uh, as people have kind of gone online during the pandemic. And I think the view taken will be that that some of the um, provisions around fraud within the bill perhaps aren't strong enough. So at the minute, there are um, obligations on platforms to deal with certain types of fraud, but only only that sort of highest risk or largest platforms. So some of the smaller platforms don't aren't under those obligations. I can I suspect that that will come under kind of some pressure as it goes through the, the House of Parliament. Thanks, Lila. So yes, yeah, so there's a lot in there. And I mean, I suspect there's much more beyond that. But those sort of there's some big headline issues that you've, you've thrown out towards us. I just want to pick up on this legal but harmful point. And Frank, maybe I can just bring you in here. Now you've worked in detail on the EU's Digital Services Act, which is the rough equivalent piece of legislation in Brussels 
to the online safety bill. But the key difference between the DSA, as it's known, and the online safety bill is that the EU's DSA does not cover legal but harmful content. It focuses on illegal content, which is much more straightforward. So can you just give us a bit of a background here on why the EU institutions took this decision not to include legal but harmful content? And during the legislative process, which I know hasn't quite concluded yet, but is nearly there in Brussels, have there been any serious attempts to bring in the regulation of legal but harmful content into the DSA? So that's that's right, actually. The, the DSA will be only applied to content that is considered illegal under EU or national law. And actually, you need to look back to 2020 when the, the European Commission published its uh, initial proposal, the Digital Services Act. And there are many reasons why the, the Commission actually took to this decision to exclude uh, harmful content from the scope. The first reason, there was clearly a risk of interfering with national legislation. You know that harmful content is it's a contested concept. You have different legal or even cultural approaches uh, in Europe. So at that time, the Commission didn't want to alienate national governments who are always quite keen to, to preserve their, their competencies on, on, on this matter, on criminal law. So it was the first reason. The second reason is the, the concept of harmful content is very subjective and depends greatly on, on context. For example, when I, when I chat with my friends, I, sometimes I can use insults, but I don't want these insults to be removed by the platform. What I mean is that this type of content, of harmful content, it's very hard to monitor and moderate for, uh, for platforms. And also, it could, it could affect freedom of speech. And this issue is very important for, for example, for digital rights advocates in the European Parliament that really are very keen to avoid this kind of risk. At the end, what the Commission has to take into account all these, these factors. And it was a political Calculus. They, they decided to exclude harmful content from the scope because they, they, they opted for an option that has the greatest chance of winning political support from the parliament, but also from member states. Of course, cr- critics would say that it's a conservative, conservative choice. But if you look at at the, at the current negotiation now, so the, as you say, the negotiator could could reach a deal in the coming days. So it's. It was very quick negotiation, in a sense, like quite a record time, like eight, 18 months, quite quick for uh, EU decision making on, on such a controversial file. And if it's quick, it means that we avoid like complex negotiation. And maybe it's mostly partly due to the fact that uh, the Commission excluded harmful content from the scope. So looking back to uh, 2020, it's, it looked like it was a good decision from the Commission. I mean, bringing together Frank's line of of argument there it was basically a bit too difficult to do i mean it was a bit too complicated and the commission wasn't prepared to take on the political the complexities of the issue but also the scale of the political opposition they would likely face and they took a pragmatic decision to get the DSA through in a more limited form, but a form that they thought they could pass it in. So, Lila, the UK is is a bit of an outlier here. A lot of those considerations that Franck just spelt out are not unique to Brussels, are not unique to the European Union. Much of those same concerns and complexities apply in the UK equally. So now you'll have the UK covering legal but harmful content but neither the EU nor the US having legislation in this area. I mean, it seems to fly quite remarkably in the face of global Britain, the idea of being regulatory flexible after Brexit, 
And you can see already the disquiet in the ranks of the Conservative MPs. So the long way of asking, I mean, but why is the government going down this route? I think there's something to be said for the length of time that has passed since the original Green Paper. And now this, finally, um, as you mentioned, the bill going to second reading yesterday. And I think what that has meant is the issues around online safety and specifically the kinds of content on platforms have got much more salience in the past few years. And frankly, there's been a kind of public clamour the government's been quite responsive to for the inclusion of things that aren't strictly illegal, but have been shown to be very harmful to minors or children, um, people of particular kind of sensibilities. And there was a challenge of including each of these things as a new offence. So they landed on this kind of legal but harmful category designated through a process that I described earlier, but basically through secondary legislation. I think the interesting thing, comparing it to the EU and, and what Frank just said, is is there was kind of some pressure to, to moderate this approach, to think again about the issues with it in a similar way to the kind of dialogues um, he was describing in the EU. And that kind of happened during the pre-legislative scrutiny phase. But frankly, the kind of politics of this got in the way a bit. So we now have Nadine Dorris as the um, Secretary of State for DCMS. And she was very set kind of ideologically from, from almost as soon as she took the position um, in increasing the regulatory burden on these tech platforms rather than creating kind of legal clarity. And I think that's kind of what's driven the approach. If you look at the bill in, in its current form, it doesn't provide a huge amount of clarity specifically around this kind of legal but harmful issue. But frankly, what it definitely does do is seek to increase the burden massively on, on tech, tech platforms and, and the kind of enforcement mechanisms around that. And I think we should see that as as really what drove the kind of final decision to definitely include this category of harms. Politics trumped practicality is maybe the uh, maybe maybe to summarize we will have to see how it works out in the end but clearly we will see a lot of concerns uh, in the commons and probably in the lords as well around this particular concept and how how it's going to be applied. So let's get on to that parliamentary process then. I mean how difficult is this going to be for the government, Lila, I mean, are they are they in danger of having significant defeats on this bill? If so, is that significant defeats in the Commons, where they have a what eighty seat majority, or is it a sort of you know smaller smaller losses and smaller concessions that we'll see given to peers in the House of Lords? How do you see it going? I think there's a lot the government can do in terms of parliamentary process to actually limit their risk here. So we saw yesterday they announced the indicative timing for the bill in terms of the different stages it will go through in in Parliament. And I think what we're already seeing them do is limit the amount of time for debates on amendments. So, for example, report stage, which comes immediately after kind of line by line scrutiny by a committee, will take place within one day, which is not exceptionally unusual, but clearly will kind of limit the amount of um, time and ability for these amendments or any changes to the bill to really get kind of popular support across the House. And I think that's that's quite important. I think this also interacts, as you mentioned, with the fact that the government does have an 80-seat majority. So what this would mean is, in practice, you'd have to have 40 MPs offside to really achieve anything on the bill, which which remains, I think, quite 
unlikely. That said, I think one area where you might see some some prospect of defeat is that legal but harmful issue, because you have got those conservative MPs, as you mentioned, concerned about regulatory overreach. And you also have a view kind of increasingly being taken by Labour, the official opposition, that it, it doesn't, the way that the government is approaching these these bits of content is a bit arbitrary and actually it should be much more focused on systems and processes. So if those two views can be aligned across a particular change, I think there is a a larger chance of defeat. I think where we will see those amendments emerge though is in the House of Lords where we typically have that slightly more detailed, slightly more considered view taken of of any piece of legislation. A lot of the amendments that sort of go in at that stage won't necessarily hold. They will then give issues um, sort of greater salience when they reach the Commons, and then you might get um, a coalition of different MPs from different parties pushing for a particular thing, which then becomes quite hard for the government to resist. But I think the, the kind of final thing to say on this is that I wouldn't overrate. I, I wouldn't over overrate the ability of you know even a group of quite significant M- prominent and prominent MPs to change this bill. I think the government, if it wants to hold firm, which we have to assume that it it will, will have quite a lot of power in terms of both whipping the party, but also limiting the amount of debates on on some of these key issues. Okay, well, thanks, Lila. So um, if we were going to be betting people, we would expect that the bill will ultimately pass. There might be some, a few choppy waters over legal but harmful in the Commons, perhaps even more choppier waters in the Lords, but ultimately the 80-seat majority, provided that the government holds firm, should be sufficient to see this through in something approximate shape to what it has been proposed now, but no doubt with a few... Uh, amendments in and around the margins. Well, thanks. Look, we're going we're gonna to wrap up the discussion on the online safety bill there, um, and we're going to move across to um, matters more focused in Brussels and Washington, D.C., which is, as I said earlier, the EU-US privacy shield. So for those who haven't been following this for years and years and years, I mean, the background here is we used to have an agreement called the Safe Harbor Agreement. Safe Harbor Agreement essentially underpinned legal transfers of European personal data to the United States. Unfortunately, uh, for those companies who were using the Safe Harbor Agreement, that was struck down by the European Court of Justice. So what happened then? The EU and the US renegotiated Safe Harbor and it transformed from being a safe harbor to a privacy shield. This was the new improved agreement that essentially served the same process um, and the same purpose, but was supposed to be more robust in the protections that it afforded European citizens uh, and how their data would be treated in the US. However, the Privacy Shield uh, fared a similar fate to the Safe Harbor Agreement and was likewise struck down by the European Court of Justice a couple of years ago. So since then, we've been in a very strange situation whereby there is legal ambiguity over the legality of these data transfers, um, while the uh, EU and US authorities negotiate a new privacy shield, Privacy Shield 2.0. So that brings us forward to today. Um, At the end of March, we had an announcement of a deal, a deal about the renegotiation of the EU-US Privacy Shield. 
But then very quickly, commentators took to Twitter to tell us that, in fact, it wasn't a deal. We didn't have a deal at all. And it was a deal to signal that there may be a deal in the future. And then the US published what was called an agreement in principle, which seems to be something like a quasi deal. It's not totally obvious where we are or where we're going to. So, Bronk, uh, through this mist of fog, can you perhaps explain to us what on earth is going on? <laughs> yeah, it's, that's, that's true. It's a bit confusing. Van der Leyen, so the Commission president, and, and Joe Biden call it an agreement uh, in principle. So as, as, you, as you say, it's, it's a political signal. And maybe one of the interesting questions is to, to understand what is the, the target of this announcement. What, the, what is the audience of, of this, of this um Political an- announcements. Obviously, you have the European and US businesses, which are operating in both markets, st- strongly impacted by um, the absence of uh, an agreement be- between the EU and the US on, on, on data transfer. So it's, it's, it's a signal to these companies that the European Commission and also the US administration they are taking this issue of data transfer very, very seriously. Now, if you look at the US administration, the audience is clearly China. So this announcement is it's an indirect consequence of the war in, in Ukraine because the, the announcement is a way for the US to show China that there is a more united Western front due to the war. And it's not only post- posturing and statements, there are, there are also concrete actions which are tangible e- example of this more united front. And this this announcement, this announcement really plays into this these dynamics and also the race between US and China for, for tech leadership. For the Euro- European Commission, it's a bit different. It's more an internal audience because at EU level you are you have two two camps on on, on data governance with two different approaches. There is the, the camp of data sovereignty, so mainly with industrial countries like France and Germany are quite skeptical about new EU, US data transfer. And also they really want to reduce dependency on, on US IT services and par- in particular US cloud providers. And they know what they believe, like France and Germany, they, they believe that the new agreement will be challenged in court. And they believe that this new deal could could be struck down again by the, the EU Court of Justice. So you have this background. And, and the, the other camp is the camp of free flow of data at EU level. So with um, Trade Commissioner um, Dombrovskis, the, also the Vice President Jurova in charge of values and transparency, uh, but also the, the future Czech presidency of the council. All these uh, stakeholders are much more open to, um, to di- digital trade and they are more um, more optimistic and they try to push forward this um, data data transfer agreement so this agreement is in a way it's a message to the data sovereignty camp in the ITU level that the message is that the EU should not be inward looking that we should avoid balkanization of data governance and that the EU is quite confident that he is able to export his data standard to the US so it's it's in a nutshell what um, what are at stake um, uh, when was uh, announced this new uh, agreement in principle. Okay, thanks, Franck. So actually, what what is going on is actually quite complicated. We have a geopolitical dimension, which is perhaps more on the American side than than in Brussels, but they want to project to China, Russia, and others 
that the West can still do deals and can still operate as one. And then there are the more practical concerns about business interests in wanting free flow of data to carry on. And then Europe's own internal debate, how to uphold high standards, while at the same time ensuring that we can be a global leader in setting those standards. So we've got the background there. We've got the dynamics, the internal fights between different camps in Brussels. What are now the main sticking points before a deal can be agreed? I mean, breaking it down to the EU as a demandeur, what does the EU want to secure from the US before we see a deal? And how likely is it the US can and will concede on those issues? So now the, the European Commission, so many DG justice and also on the US side, the Department of Commerce, they are working out the, the technical details of the, of this uh, agreement, of this political agreement. Your question, what, what is the most contentious issue? Um, actually, the most contentious issue is the redress mechanism. It's what is this redress, redress mechanism? Actually, it's, it will allow me, if I want to challenge, for example, if, if I know that American National Security Agency have potentially mishandled my personal information that was transferred to the US, this mechanism should allow me to challenge this mishandling of my own my personal information. And why why this is key, actually, is key because it was identified as a gap by the EU Court of Justice when the, the EU Court of Justice struck down the privacy shield three years ago. So it's it's a key challenge for, for DG Justice to address this, this type of gaps because they want to ensure that the new mechanism is legally robust. And they, the, the main objective of the commission is they really want to avoid a repeat of the safe harbor or the privacy shield that were struck down, as you explained at the beginning, in, in, um, in 2020 and even before. And this is, this is the main challenge for, for, the, for the commission and DG justice, just to ensure that the new mechanism is legally robust and to avoid being struck down again by the EU Court of, of Justice. So essentially, they want to stop there having to be negotiations for a privacy shield 3.0. Just the two versions of it would be sufficient for everyone. So if that's the case, then let's say they get this sorted in a way that both sides think is is robust enough to hold off Max Schrems and the privacy challenges at the European Court of Justice. What is the what is the process then? Let's say they agree in two months' time, for argument's sake. What what happens? How does this agreement get ratified? And is that process relatively straightforward or would we anticipate there being political opposition to uh, a new agreement? On, on the ratification process, uh, there are two main, two main steps. The first one, you have the European Data Protection Board, which is composed of national uh, data protection authorities. This um, body will publish a non-binding opinion on the, on the decision from the, the European Commission. And then you have a second step. You have a committee which is composed of national officials that will endorse the draft decision. So on, on the first step, maybe we can expect that some national data protection authorities, like for example, the, the French one, CNIL, they will scrutinize and they will try to assess whether the new mechanism is, is robust enough, is consistent with the level of data protection provided by the GDPR. And they may raise concerns. and. This could potentially force the Commission 
and the U.S. administration to come back to the negotiation table and to, to refine the, the agreements. But the second step, so the, the committee of uh, composed of national officials, it's uh, it's more straightforward. So because TG just will make sure that she has a majority of member states su- supporting the New Deal, and that's why that during the negotiation they tried to the Commission tried to update and consult national experts um, to, to, to just to anticipate any concern that could be raised by member states. So this second step sh- should be easier, and we can expect uh, a formal endorsement by by member states. But actually, the big battle for the Commission will be in court. After after a ratification process, because when the the agreement will be finally adopted by the Commission, what we expect it will face a legal challenge from private activists like Max Max uh, Max Schrems almost immediately after after the, the final uh, final publication of of the of the deal. Okay, thanks, Ron. So let's just bring that all together. Then during the process itself, the trickiest part is probably going to be the data protection regulators who are part of the European Data Protection Board. What their opinion says is pretty important for giving member states, the national governments, political cover and the commission to then approve the deal. And then obviously in the longer term, there's that legal battle, which we all assume will happen. Again, that opinion from the data protection regulators will presumably be quite important in framing how that legal challenge unfolds in court. But let's move away from just looking at the EU focus and the institution institutional elements that we've been through. And let's take a slightly more global perspective about where data transfer policy is headed. And Lila, this is where I'd I'd quite like to just bring you in to give a UK perspective, because as far as I understand, the UK is essentially tied to the EU's regime at the moment for data transfers. Um, Therefore, we are essentially looking on at the Privacy Shield negotiations and uh, hoping they will happen. But in the longer term, presumably the UK is going to want to arrange its own data transfer arrangements with the US and a whole range of other countries. Perhaps you can just give give a give a sense of what's happening in London on this particular topic. Absolutely, in terms of the UK wanting to come to its own kind of data transfer arrangements with the US. And I think the politics of this is that um, an agreement on data transfer with the US would be quite a useful counter to the absence of a US um, UK trade deal anytime soon. So it would be quite a useful kind of foil to indicate that there was some progress um, in that relationship and and that that was sort of substantive progress that they might not have achieved um, within the EU. So it's kind of, it both serves their sort of Brexit divergence narrative, but also um, the wider kind of view taken that we need to be forging distinct and kind of meaningful relationships with the US and other allies outside of the EU. But I think the reality of this is we're not seeing a huge amount of joined up thinking between the Department for International Trade and the Department for um, Culture and Media and Sport, who would lead this from kind of the digital side. So it doesn't seem to me that there's kind of any imminent progress on this. Also, I think kind of operationally and on kind of a policy level, it's worth noting that the government is planning to bring forward its own data bill um, which sort of is supposed to allow the UK to um, repeal parts of GDPR in a kind of very s- small and limited way, while obviously still remaining compliant with the 
um, uh, the, with the agreement it reached with uh, the EU on on data um, as part of the um, kind of Brexit um, trade deal. Um, so that's kind of not, it's not quite clear where that's landed. We've had a sort of consultation and, and a sing- signal of government's intent, but clearly the kind of final bill will be quite important in that. But again, this is kind of the sort of thing that would have to be in place to underpin um, any future deal on kind of data transfer with the US. If, if the UK is kind of not clear quite what its position is on this, um, I think it's going to struggle um, to to work with um, the kind of relevant departments, both within the UK government, but also clearly its US counterparts on um, kind of delivering something that has a meaningful impact, you know, is useful and helpful to the to businesses and the wider um, kind of uh, environment post Brexit. And really, the UK government isn't kind of practically there, despite the kind of rhetorical ambition of reaching some sort of data deal um, with the US, which which for similar reasons um, to the ones Frank has mentioned, the UK would quite like to do. It would it would see it, it see it, see an agreement on this as kind of an important signal of intent with regard to kind of its allies versus China. Um, it would also see it see its um, it, as a future kind of fu- sense of future intent on the UK's attitude to tech policy post Brexit. So it would be quite a useful signalling mechanism, but the policy isn't really there and doesn't kind of seem to be imminently. Yeah, so to to sort of slight juxtaposition here, the UK wants to move ahead and uh, forge data transfer arrangements that are ambitious and with a number of countries, most obviously the US. But until those policies are in place, the UK is essentially still hitched to the EU's GDPR framework and hoping that the EU and the US can find a legal firm footing for their data transfers that the UK can essentially uh, use for its own purposes uh, as a legal basis for its own uh, personal data transfers over to the United States. Obviously, if the EU and the US don't uh, come to any sort of agreement, then you would imagine that might accelerate uh, the UK's government's uh, policy in this area and its desire to act in an independent manner from the European Union. So, Frank, let's just finish off on one final question. We touched on it with the UK, but I mean, what's your thoughts on, is there any prospect for multilateral data transfer agreements? We've talked here about you know, China and how the US and the UK and others want to show China and Russia that we have a more united West. Well, that implies that there might be more momentum for a data transfer framework between, say, like-minded countries, the EU the UK, the US, maybe Japan, Australia, Canada. I mean, can you see something like this ever happening? No, that's, that's true, Conan, that the, the stars are more aligned for this, this type of multi, multilateral agreements. But you, you need to consider the, the objectives of the different parties. We know that the EU really wants to remain a, a global digital regulator, and they want to, to, to act as a, as a standard setter in the, in the digital sphere. The US, they want to remain a, a global digital power and they want to beat China, basically. So th- these objectives can conflict sometimes, but also can coexist. And on data protection is really an example where they can coexist. Now, if you look at uh, uh, other approaches to, to data, data protection uh, at global level, you have already many countries while uh, leaning towards the GDPR, the European model, is the case for Brazil, Argentina, in Latin America, or, or in Asia, you have India or Indonesia. So, so just to name a few. 
And maybe more importantly, you have it was three years ago, the EU reached a data adequacy agreement with Japan. And it was the first one, it was the first adequacy agreement uh, reached under the GDPR. And at that time, Tokyo, they, they, they looked to use it as an early step to, to forge an international agreement. So instead of like bilateral agreement, like a plurilateral agreement on, on data protections, it was not successful, but we can, we can expect that an agreement between the EU and the US would definitely re-inject momentum in, in, into this. Okay, so ending on an optimistic note there, Franck, if we get a privacy shield, you never know, it may become a, at least a plurilateral, if not a multilateral uh, data transfer framework. No doubt Max Schrems and his colleagues in his uh, privacy NGO will be uh, happy to try and challenge that one at court too. Well, I just want to say thank you very much to, to Franck and to Lila for taking us through those two uh, complex um, but fascinating uh, topics. Um, just a flag for regular listeners um, that the Top in Tech podcast is looking to migrate to its own uh, specific thread. So uh, keep your eyes peeled. You should hopefully see Top in Tech um, as a standalone offer from the Global Council uh, podcast in the weeks and months to come. And as ever, if I could just thank you for joining. Uh, and if you, your business or your investment are exposed to the online safety bill or the EU-US privacy shield, please don't get hesitate to get in touch with, uh, with me or also with Franck or with Lila. You can find their contact details at the GC website, which is www.global-council.com or indeed you can find it in the link in the podcast notes. So thank you for joining and we look forward to uh, seeing you in a month's time for the latest edition of Top in Tech. Bye-bye. For more insights, blogs, and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.